Thanks so much, Carrie Lynn. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And thanks so much for being with us this morning on this kind of cold and snowy day, uh, the first day of March. Spring is on its way. Um, but it's not quite here yet. So thank you for being here this morning, especially if this is your first time. Thanks so much for coming out on a day like this. We're so glad to have you here at Christ Community. And uh, this morning, we're continuing our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, this New Testament letter. And as we've worked our way through uh, this, this first century letter to a small floundering church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth, um, we've learned that they, a lot like us, uh, are a beautiful mess, that there's a lot that's right, but there's a whole lot that's really messy in their church. And in this letter, Paul, who planted this church in Corinth, is addressing the messiness of that church, and he's challenging them, he's pleading with them to bring every aspect of their lives in line with the gospel. And along the way so far in the letter, he's addressed their pride, their divisiveness, the, the petty lawsuits that they had with one another, and here in chapter 6, um, he's been addressing how they were handling sexuality. And in verses 9 and 10, in particular, amidst this whole list of sins, which we just heard read, he mentions homosexual practice, which leads us to a really important question this morning. And that is, has the church gotten homosexuality wrong? Has the church gotten homosexuality wrong? And the answer to that question is both an emphatic yes and no. Yes, there are some things the church has gotten wrong with homosexuality. There are far too many and far too often the church has at best failed to understand and listen to those who experience same-sex attraction. And at worst has contributed to the marginalization and even in some cases the abuse of those of same-sex attraction. Many Christians, myself included, have been way too quick to put those who experience same-sex attraction into some special category while minimizing our own heterosexual brokenness and sin. I've had to repent of that myself, and I continue to learn much from those friends of mine who experience same-sex attraction and who are part of the gay community. The story that the church has often told has been painfully reductionistic and often devoid of genuine compassion and sacrificial, costly love. We've got to tell a better story. But there are also many examples of churches who are getting this right, who sacrificially love their neighbors who experience same-sex attraction and who continue to hold a high view of the Bible, even those passages that prohibit homosexual practices. Churches who continue to bear witness to God's good design for gender, sexuality, and marriage. So how can we be that kind of church? Faithful to God's design with conviction, compassion, sacrificial love. And that's what we want to explore today because we've got to tell a better story. Now, if this is your first time with us at Christ Community, um, wow, you picked a great Sunday to be here, and, uh, and welcome to church, right? Uh, this is quite a Sunday to join us for the very first time, and, and maybe you're wishing right now that you hadn't sit, sat right in the middle of the pew, um, that you can't slide out without it being really uh, awkward here in the middle. And, and let me just say, um, let me just assure you right from the beginning that, that we don't always talk about sex, and we certainly don't always talk about homosexuality here. 
But we are passionate about teaching through books of the Bible and discussing the topics that that come up as the scripture writers write. And so that's why we're talking about it this morning, because it's what's in the passage that we're discussing. So, So like I said last week, this isn't our soapbox at Christ Community. There's only one soapbox at Christ Community. That's Jesus and the gospel. Um... So then you may be wondering, then why are we spending a whole Sunday on this topic? I mean, there's a whole list of sins here after all, right? I mean, we could preach a whole sermon on any one of these things. So why this? Well, here's the thing. As long as I've been a pastor at Christ Community, it's coming up on seven years, um, no one has ever asked me, what's Christ Community's stance on reviling? Um, can, I, can I be a reviler and still be a Christian? Um, or I have a friend who's a swindler. Is, 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 is he going to be welcome at Christ Community on Sunday morning? But I'm regularly asked all the time about, well, how should I think about homosexuality? If I'm gay, can I still be a Christian? If I experience same-sex attraction, will I be welcome at Christ's community? And so we want to spend time on this this morning, not because it's worse, not because it's our soapbox, but because it's something that people are asking about. And as we begin, I just want to set a few expectations right from the beginning. Not, not because we're afraid to talk about these things, but because we want to talk about them well. And first, like last week, this message uh, will probably be a little bit longer than normal. Um, Second, this message will challenge every one of us, myself included, no matter who you are or where you're coming from or who you're attracted to, this message is going to push all of us. And third, this message will definitely not answer every question you have. I can promise that. It's the one thing I can say for sure this morning, that you will not have every question answered. But, But hopefully, we can begin a start. This can be a good start to a conversation that will make us as a people, that will make us as individuals more like Jesus. So we've got to tell a better story. And thanks be to God, we have a better story to tell. And so as we delve into this story, I want to pause and ask for God's help as we explore it together. Let's do that right now. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that you have spoken in your word, that you have revealed uh, yourself to us. And I pray that this morning as we um, look at this topic uh, that is so charged in so many different ways for, uh, for all of us um, this morning, that we would experience um, a unique outpouring of your Holy Spirit that would grant conviction, um, that would grant uh, comfort and encouragement and challenge, Lord, would, we, would you just teach us this morning? Would you illumine the places of, of our hearts where, where they need to be illumined? Would you comfort us where there's pain? Um, would you be near to us in places of hurt and loneliness and brokenness? Um, and more than anything else, would Jesus be exalted? And would what we do here this morning embody who he is? Your great gift to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked at all of chapter 6 and explored the broad framework for the Christian sexual ethic. And and we saw that in Christ that we don't belong to us anymore. (laughs) That we don't belong to us anymore. That that we are more than just our desires. That we're more than just individuals. that, That we're more than just matter. We're more than just a pile of atoms. 
And, and this week as we look at homosexual practice and same-sex attraction, I know that for some of you listening this morning, this is much more than just a conversation. This is your life, that you experience same-sex attraction every day. And I want to say to you right from the beginning this morning that we as your church family are so glad that you are here. We love you, and, and we're so glad that you're here. And I just want to say to you this morning, if, if that's you, I just want to say I'm sorry for the ways that I and others have no doubt misunderstood and marginalized you without even knowing it. But know that we want you here, and we're so glad that you're here. Also, many of you here this morning love someone, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a cousin, a friend, a parent, who experiences same-sex attraction. And again, let me just say, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. And I want you to know that your loved one is always welcome here at Christ Community. And some others of you listening this morning, you're angry and you're frustrated when it comes to this topic. Angry either because you are demanding unqualified acceptance of homosexual practice in the church and you haven't seen that here. Or because you're demanding unqualified condemnation of those who experience same-sex attraction and you haven't seen that here either. I just want to say, see, if that's where you're at this morning in either one of those camps, that, that both of you are going to be disappointed. And that's because the gospel calls us to a third way that is neither unqualified affirmation nor unqualified condemnation. And again, the thing I want us to remember most is that we've got to tell a better story. And the good news is we, we have a better story to tell. And as we look at this passage again this morning, we're going to see the, the story of who we are, or excuse me, the story of who we were. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. So if we get to the story of who we are, we think you're looking at your watch thinking, wow, how are we going to get done with this? We're going to spend most of our time in the story of who we were. Then we're going to look at the story of who we are and the story we want to tell. The story of who we were, the story of who we are, and the story we want to tell. So first, in verses 9 through 11, Paul lays out the story of who we were. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And he writes this. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived. Paul says, Don't, don't be confused. Don't be deceived about this. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Paul says. So here Paul is listing examples. This isn't an exhaustive catalog, but he's listing examples of the kind of behaviors that demonstrate that we are in open rebellion against God. And these behaviors, they put us on a trajectory that if left unaltered, will take us further and further away from him and from a future of joy and delight with him. That's what Paul means when he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice there, there's no hierarchy in this list. No one of these things is more likely to exclude you from God's presence than any of the others. Um, though we did see last week that there's a uniqueness, Paul highlights in verse 18, to sexual sin as a sin against the body. But there's no hierarchy in this list. And in fact, if any of these things would be more likely to exclude you from God's kingdom, it would be something like greed. And, and that's only because we tend not to realize when we're being greedy. And so we don't repent of it as quickly. 
So shame on us for singling, singling out one of these. I mean, imagine if we treated greed or immorality or reviling or swindling like we treated homosexuality. I mean, would there be any of us left here on Sunday morning? This is why we all have to begin with repenting of all sin, no matter what it is. Because simply finding something in this list gross or weird doesn't somehow make you righteous. And don't overlook that slander is listed alongside of homosexuality here. Because that word that Paul uses there, that was used in Paul's time to describe speech, which was used as a weapon in political dispute. How many of us have been guilty of slander when we've talked about homosexual practice and same-sex attraction? So we're talking about homosexual practice this morning, not because we take this sin more seriously than the rest, but because we take all sin seriously. So what does Paul say here? What does he say about homosexual practice in this verse? Well, he uses two Greek words that are closely related to one another. And the ESV, which we read this morning, the English Standard Version, translates these words into one phrase, men who practice homosexuality. Other translations render them slightly differently. But the, the key idea is that of males taking other males to bed. In other words, homosexual practice. And Paul, who was very aware of the Roman Empire's widespread homosexual practice in his day, speaks specifically here about homosexual sexual practice not same-sex attraction. And Mark Yarhouse, uh, in his really helpful book, which I'd highly re recommend, called Homosexuality and the Christian, um, this is a great read, makes the distinction between same-sex attraction, which is the experience of feeling attracted to people of the same sex, and what he calls a gay identity, which is where same-sex attractedness is the defining characteristic of a person's identity. So what Paul condemns here as sin is not experiencing same-sex attraction, but the activity of homosexual practice. Now many today are, are quick to dismiss Paul's teaching by dismissing Paul as, as ignorant or bigoted or homophobic. But before we just swipe Paul away, we just need to know a little bit about who he was. I mean, he grew up in the cosmopolitan city of Tarsus, a city that was known uh, for its university of learning and uh, for Greco-Roman thought, particularly Stoic philosophy. Um, Paul was multilingual. He was fluent in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. He was well-traveled. He was multicultural. He was steeped in the best writings of the Greco-Roman world. I mean, philosophically, theologically, culturally, Paul was an Ivy Leaguer. And as a rabbi, Paul is part of this grand Jewish tradition that's centered in the narrative of the Old Testament. And his teaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reflects the consistent, coherent worldview of the entire biblical story. And it's only when we begin to understand that broader biblical story that we can begin to make sense of this verse in 1 Corinthians. So what's the story that makes sense of this verse well, it's a story that begins in Genesis chapter 1, the very first page of your Bible. In fact, if you have one of the few Bibles, I even encourage you just to turn to the very first book of the Bible there, Genesis chapter 1. And in verses 26 and 27, read this way, Then God said, Let us make humankind, mankind in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing on the earth. And so God created 
humankind in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, God makes human beings in his image, and it takes both male and female to fully display and reflect that image. In man and woman, there is radical similarity and also profound difference. And indeed, this this tension between sameness and distinctness is actually a reflection of who God is, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are the same. They are equal and yet distinct. Each person is fully and equally God, and yet each person is not the other. They are different. And so masculinity and femininity, their distinctiveness is part of what God declared from the very beginning to be very good, reflecting his triune nature. This male and female distinctiveness becomes even clearer in Genesis chapter 2. Adam is created first and then Eve is formed and and Adam's wife Eve is the archetypical, she's the companion, the helper, this complementary piece that joins to complete Adam. She's the helper that corresponds to him. And when Genesis 2 comes to a close, the institution of marriage emerges in verses 24 and 25 of Genesis chapter 2 where the man and woman come together in complementary union of body, soul, mind, and spirit. So so creation design means that gender identity is biologically determined. It's not merely individually or socially constructed. This is really important for us to grasp if we're going to understand the biblical story. But when sin enters the world, everything is shattered. Affections, desires, design, it's all distorted, including sexuality and gender. And so betrayal and shame and greed and homosexual practice and adultery and sexual immorality, all of this becomes a part of the human experience after the fall. And so given this new reality of sin in the world, what does the rest of the story say about homosexual practice as we look at the biblical storyline. Well, later on in the book of Genesis in chapter 19, we, we see a narrative where in the city of Sodom, a man named Lot has two male visitors that the men of the city demand to rape. And we find a similarly awful incident in the book of Judges in chapter 19. Now, it's important to recognize that these texts are more about gang rape than homosexual practice. Because what happens in Genesis 19 and Judges 19 is unspeakably awful, regardless of whether or not any homosexual practice was involved. They would be just as awful if there's only heterosexual elements. But they give us a picture of just how quickly sin is spread into the world and how broken the world has become in such a short time. And two other key moments in the story after the fall are Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And these passages give clear and unequivocal prohibitions against homosexual practice. And these texts are set in the context of laws that speak about Israel's life as a distinct nation set apart from their neighbors. And this is why you also have prohibitions about certain foods in the same section of the Bible. But while food regulations are later disregarded, the persistent witness of the Bible on homosexual sex is negative all the way through to the very end. There's no movement toward affirmation in the Old Testament. And the same is true when we come to the New Testament as well. 
when you finally arrive at the Apostle Paul, situated at the end of the story, who, who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards and who had experienced the resurrected Jesus, whom he now called his Messiah and Rabbi, he shows great continuity in all three of the letters that he wrote in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul mentions homosexual practices sinfully opposed to God's design and desire. So this is the story um, that Christians have affirmed, um, have been shaped by for 2,000 years. Uh, but many, uh, very understandably, question and disagree with this story today. And, and let me just say at this point that if you disagree with the story because you don't take the Bible as authoritative, I completely respect that. If, if this book isn't authoritative uh, for you, if you don't see this as God's word and, and you disagree with that story, completely respect that. I totally understand that. But there are some who want to hold the Bible as authoritative and suggest that homosexual practice within a loving monogamous relationship may be or is compatible with the Bible's teaching. And to that I just want to say, it just simply isn't the case. It, it's no more uh, compatible with the Bible than, than heterosexual practice outside of the covenant of marriage, whether that be in premarital sex, adultery, pornography, sex with a prostitute. And so what are the common questions that are put to the biblical narrative? For those, what are the questions that come here? Well, first, um, one of the common questions is, is if homosexual practice is such a big deal, then why is it only mentioned a few times? And we just went through basically every place in the Bible that talks about this. If this is so important, why is it only mentioned a few times? Well, careful biblical interpretation doesn't just count verses. It also weighs them. So how strong is the command? How is it treated throughout the broad storyline of creation, fall, redemption, new creation? We have to weigh the command, not just count up how many times the Bible talks about something. And we see this in the rest of life too, right? For, for example, when you were growing up, how many times did your parents tell you to brush your teeth versus how many times did they tell you not to shoplift? Now, which would they have been more upset if you did or didn't do? You wouldn't assume automatically, well, they only told me not to shoplift a couple times, and so that must not be a big deal. Um, but they told me to brush my teeth all the time, so that's what they'd be really upset about. So we have to count, not just count commands, we have to weigh them. So along those lines, another question is often raised is, if this is important, if this is so important, then why doesn't Jesus explicitly say anything about it? If this is really such a big deal, why doesn't Jesus say anything about it explicitly? And while the gospel writers don't record Jesus speaking about homosexuality in particular, well, we have to remember that Jesus is a part of that same rabbinic tradition as Paul based out of the Old Testament. And in Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked about divorce, he affirms God's creation design that we looked at by quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Also, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus' audience, I mean, Jesus didn't travel a lot in his lifetime. I mean, he, his audience was primarily Palestinian Jews. And for them, homosexual practice just wasn't an issue they were wondering about because they were steeped in the Old Testament tradition. This was just outside of, just out of bounds for them. They didn't even have a question about it. And so it would be like someone looking back at all of my sermons and somehow saying that because I'd never preached a message on polygamy um, that I'm in favor of it or see it as acceptable. But, but polygamy here in Kansas City today just isn't a big question that people ask about. It's just not a common concern. 
Another argument that's often made is that the biblical writers had no category for uh, or experience with sort of loving, committed, same-sex relationships. And so what these texts are speaking to, they, just, they, just don't, they don't even apply. So people would argue that these texts are only prohibiting abusive, exploitive, uh, promiscuous homosexual practice. Or, on the other hand, that they're only permitting homosexual practice by those whose orientation is heterosexual. But this simply just doesn't square with the facts on the ground when we start digging into the historical research. Um, scholars like Robert Gagnon, and if you ever have a, like really want to understand what does the text of Scripture say about homosexuality, Gagnon's book is the best. It's big, um, but it's extremely well-researched. Um, he's the best that there is. Uh, the Bible and homosexual practice. Um, and, and he points out in this, in pages after pages of examples in the ancient world that show examples of these kinds of relationships, of loving, committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships. So it's not that Paul didn't know about these. Same thing, uh, scholar T.K. Hubbard, who's an uh, LGBTQ historian with no interest in advancing a historical Christian sexual ethic, he also cites many examples of loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships in the ancient world. So that argument just doesn't really stand when you press into the historical research. Also, uh, Gagnon points out that to suppose that Paul was condemning only participation in homosexual acts by those who are naturally attracted to the opposite sex is equivalent to saying that the scriptural condemnation of adultery only refers to relationships among those who are naturally monogamous. Some way the argument proves too much. So another question that's often put to the historic teaching uh, of the church here is that since the early church changed its view about the Old Testament dietary laws, shouldn't we do the same with homosexual practice? And then the key text where people go to here is Acts chapter 10, where, where the apostle Peter has a vision indicating that, that certain foods that were unclean for Israel are now clean for the church. But we have to keep reading Acts because just a few chapters down the road in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, when a group of people come together, so this is the Jerusalem Council, and, and they're deciding together what's essential for us as a church going forward from the Old Testament. One of the four categories that they say this is vital for us to maintain going forward is sexual purity. And the church, whether Jew or Gentile, was to adopt a sexual ethic that excluded porneia. It's a word we looked at last week. Porneia is, is any sort of sexual practice outside of the covenant of heterosexual marriage, including homosexual practice. See, the food laws were not rooted in creation design. They were given for a period of time to make Israel a distinct nation. But the sexual ethic is rooted in creation design, and so it's timeless. Another really common objection that actually it's compelling is that it's homosexuality, it's, it's genetically determined. And, and the biblical writers, they didn't know anything about that. And so these verses don't, given what we know today from science, these, these verses just don't apply. However, the genetic argument is increasingly dismissed by both those in the LGBTQ community as well as those outside of it. Lots of research has been done, a gay gene hasn't been found. And if it is found, we must remember that some genes are prescriptive, like the color of our skin. However, we cannot confuse genetic prescription with genetic influence. 
And this is why comparing race with sexual orientation is so problematic, yet it's often used for persuasive purposes. But what we know from research now is that same-sex attraction is a combination of many factors. You see, theologically, our genetic makeup not only corresponds to God's design, but also the corruption of that design. So sin and brokenness go down in touch even to the genetic level and have genetic implications. So their genetic predispositions toward violence, for example, or addictive behavior like gambling or drug addiction, but just because we have a genetic influence towards one of those things does not validate its goodness, nor does it give us license for lack of moral responsibility and having control, self-control in these predispositions. And finally, another objection, and this is the one that I feel the most, and that truly does bring me to tears often, and I think it should all of us, And that is, how can we ask a person with same-sex desires that they may have for their entire life to live a life of celibacy, to give up sex, and to give up what probably feels like any chance of love for their entire life? And this is the hardest one, isn't it? How can God make such a high demand This is where the story of who we are now comes in. Now, now let me just say, if you're not a Christian this morning, it's actually a little bit less complicated, isn't it? Because whether you're gay or straight, if if the fulfillment of your desires is the best thing that you can imagine, then you're going to pursue those desires. And and I can't blame you for that. But but if you're here this morning and, and you are a Christian, then you don't belong to you anymore. We've got to tell a better story. And we have a better one to tell, better than our desires, better than sex, better than anything. And I just wish we believed the story. And the story is in the last half of verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. And you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Holy Spirit of our God. You see, every New Testament passage about homosexual practice is in the context of hope, forgiveness, and a whole new identity in Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. Now, there are no promises that our distorted desires, whether they be for money or for sex or for power or for food or whatever, will ever go away in this life. It's just not a promise that's made for us in the Bible. But there are promises at every turn that life with Jesus is better. So whether you experience same-sex attraction or not, our identity is with Jesus. And here's the thing, we haven't often talked about this in the church, but a life with Jesus is always a life of suffering and self-denial no matter who we are. There is always a choice between my identity and his. I mean, think of the millions of Christians who have been murdered for following Jesus. We say, it isn't fair. But Jesus never promised fair. He only promised that he would be with us. Wesley Hill, Wes Hill is a great example of this, and I would highly recommend his book, Wash and Waiting. If you only read one book on, on same-sex attraction and homosexuality from a Christian perspective, if you only have time to read one, this is a 150-page book, read Wes's book. 
And, and Wes grew up in a healthy Christian home in Arkansas. And from day one, he knew that he was different. And, and he tells a story here, a story of why he daily chooses Jesus rather than the fulfillment of his homosexual desires. For Wes, he says, it's because Jesus is better. Let me just read you from Wes. He says, the message of what God has done through Christ reminds me that all Christians, whatever their sexual orientation, to one degree or another, experience the same frustration as I do. As God challenges, threatens, endangers, and transforms all of our natural desires and affections. Wes goes on to say, I love this. He says, the gospel proclaims that we belong to God twice over. First, because he created us. And second, because he redeemed us through the work of his son. And then Wes says, though it sounds politically incorrect to modern ears, the gospel has always said that God may demand from us whatever he wants, since we do not belong to ourselves. And Wes isn't alone. Uh, similarly, Eve Tishnet in her book, Gay and Catholic, writes that if the local church is actually living out the gospel, then a life without sex doesn't have to mean a life without love. So as we've looked at the story of who we were and the story of who we are, we said we have a better story to tell. So, so what is that story? Well, first is a story of repentance. Wes Hill writes that, that with any sin, with any disordered affection, sexual or otherwise, that ignoring is not the path to redeeming. Ignoring is not the path to redeeming. The Christian story is one of repentance and forgiveness. We as a church need to repent of our sin for our porn years, for idolatry, for adultery, yes, for some homosexual practice, and yes, for most all of us, our greed, our gossip, our pride, our divisions, our homophobia. How many of us have been guilty of using gay as an adjective to mean lame or stupid? How many of us have snickered at jokes made at the expense of those who experience same-sex attraction or have used derogatory slang? Ignoring is not the path to redeeming. Second, the story we tell is one of understanding. You see, many of us are, are woefully under-informed under about the experiences of those who experience same-sex attraction and where those attractions originate. Again, West Hill is so good here. He writes that there was nothing it felt chosen or intentional about me being gay. It seemed more like noticing the blueness of my eyes than deciding I would take up skiing. He says, there was never an option. Do you want to be gay? Yes, I do, please. It was a gradual coming to terms, not a conscious resolution. And I've actually heard Wes speak, and, and he jokes that why on earth would someone in a conservative Christian home growing up in the South choose this and then choose to be celibate? We try to make it so simple, don't we? I mean, sure, we choose our actions, but it's pretty hard to choose our feelings, our attractions. Same-sex attraction is not as simple as just making a choice. And this also means that change and growth and transformation aren't that simple either. 
So yes, the gospel offers the hope of transformation, but that transformation for all of us, no matter what it is that we have in our lives, is never complete until the new creation. You and I will experience and battle temptation and sin for our entire lives. I mean, can God completely remove all temptation in a particular area for a person so that they never struggle again in that area? Sure, of course God can do that. Does he? Rarely. Why? Why is that? Because more often than not, our prayer, God, take this from me, whatever that is, whatever the struggle is, God, take this from me. More often than not, God's answer to that prayer isn't an instant transformation. More often than not, we get the same answer that the Apostle Paul got when he prayed three times for a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was to be removed. What does God say to Paul over and over and over again? I mean, Paul pleaded, God, take this away from me. And what's the answer back? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the answer we usually get. Not instant transformation. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The goal of Christianity is not to make everyone a heterosexual married person with 2.5 kids. That is not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is to take people who are dead in their sin and make them alive and make them like Jesus. Third, the story we want to tell is one of compassion. And of all of this... And after hearing all this, for those of you here this morning who experienced same-sex attraction, you may be wondering, am I even welcome here, Bill? And I just want to say to you again, yes, you are welcome here. Everyone is welcome here at Christ Community. I mean, just look around the room. Look at who's here, okay? Everyone is welcome here. I mean, I'm the pastor. Uh, so if, I, if they let me be the pastor, everyone is welcome here, Okay? And every one of us comes with all kinds of sin and lots of baggage, and the church is a place of forgiveness and, the hope, and hope. That's what the gospel is about. That's why our soapbox here is the gospel. That's why our soapbox is Jesus. But the gospel and forgiveness also mean that we call sin, sin, and we take it seriously. And we're never going to affirm what the Bible clearly calls sin, whether that's the sin of adultery or greed or homosexual practice or gospel slander. The Bible calls it sin. We're going to call it sin, and we're gonna, we'll deal with it together. whether it is gossip or slander. And on that note, Christ's community here at our church, we will not tolerate abusive speech or mistreatment of anyone for any reason, whether it's race or socioeconomic status or sexual orientation. And if you experience same-sex attraction and you're a part of our church family and you've been discriminated against or marginalized because of that, tell me. I will stand with you and we will deal with it. Mark Yarhouse points out that those men and women who experience same-sex attraction and yet choose a path of obedience and celibacy are one of the most oppressed sexual minorities today. Because the gay community rejects them as not being true to themselves, and the church rarely understands them or has a place for them. But oh, would that not be true at Christ's community? We have a long way to go here as a church. We're, we have so far to go here. 
But my prayer is that we would increasingly be the kind of church that truly enfolds all who love Christ and long to follow him in his ways. Rosaria Butterfield, who was a former lesbian, former professor at Syracuse University, and she met Jesus and kind of everything in her life sort of blew up. But she points out that the church has a lot to learn from the gay community. She writes that the gay and lesbian community is a real community from which the church has a lot to learn about standing with the disempowered and being good company for the suffering. In fact, she often tells believing parents of gay children, she says, you will have to work very hard to love your son or daughter as much as the gay community does. And last, the story we tell is one of new identity. We've got to live out of our new identity and help others to do the same. Our identity is with Jesus, period. He's all we have. He's all we need. I and mean, we sing that all the time, right? Every one of our songs kind of comes back to that theme at some point. But do we really mean it? Because Jesus didn't die to make us happier or more successful or to get us help avoiding suffering or to have a great sex life. He died to give us his love, the very nearness of God, to make us whole, to take dead people and make them alive again. And again, Rosaria Butterfield reminds us that don't presume the worst sin in your gay or lesbian neighbor's life is sexuality. It's not. The worst sin is unbelief. And that's true for all of us. That's who all of us were at some point, people who were stuck and dead in unbelief. That's who I was. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And that, that's a story worth telling. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to come into this prayer just first of all repenting. Repenting of my own sin, both as it just relates to, to the junk in my own heart and life and especially for the areas where, where I have not loved and cared for those who experience same-sex attraction for my gay and lesbian neighbors. Forgive me, forgive us. Would you make us at Christ's community a place that sacrificially, costly, loves people, whoever they are, wherever they're from. Would we be marked by the welcome and hospitality of Christ? And would you make us a people that are holy and honor your design in every part of our lives? Not, not because somehow you want to keep something from us, but because you have created a design that is for our flourishing and for our good. Would you help us in this? Would you comfort us in our loneliness? Would you heal us in our brokenness? Would you make us more like Jesus? In Jesus' name, amen.